are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. All right, this is John 18, 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers and chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Hi. If we haven't met, my name's Mark, and Justin and I swapped pulpits today, and Justin delivered a powerful and encouraging message this morning to our church, Redeeming Grace Church. It's been a wonderful weekend, a kind of a um, sojourn Redeeming Grace weekend, because we had this elders retreat Thursday night, Friday, and Saturday with the, the combined elderships of the two churches, and then... Um, Justin preached this morning for Redeeming Grace, and then we had a, a members meeting uh, this morning with all three of your elders there. And um, uh, the Lord really met us in a sweet way on our retreat and just really impressed on us, I think, in a way that we weren't fully expecting, just a sense of the Spirit's presence and this call to this, this new little assembly of elders to really invest in one another relationally and become a, a relationally committed uh, little mini community so that we can serve you this this larger community as as we're becoming uh, one united church and uh, then it was just really sweet uh, this morning to hear from Kim and hear her uh, explain a little bit about her journey and her uh, love for you and this amazing church that she's a part of and representing as she goes uh, out in, in April and um, so it's been a great day, and it's a privilege and a joy to be able to be with you 
this afternoon, and I feel my need of God's help as we look at John 18. So let's, let's pray. O oh God, our Father, in the beginning you said, let there be light, and out of the darkness there was light. And somehow, through your incomprehensible mercy, you said, let there be light in the darkness of our hearts. And there was light. And we have seen the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have been changed and transformed and are being changed and transformed as we look to him, see him, and trust in him. We ask now, I ask, Holy Spirit, make Jesus glorious to this congregation. People watching at home, people gathered here, I pray, let us see. Pray for a work of seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as we look at his arrest. For the glory of his name and the advance of his gospel, I pray. Amen. Amen. Recently, my daughter-in-law, who lives in California, went to renew her driver's license. Shouldn't be a big deal. No tickets, no problems. Should be no problem, right? Well, not so much. When she tried to renew her driver's license in California, they told her that the DMV in Virginia, where she and my son used to live, they moved three years ago, the DMV here had put a freeze on her license there because she hadn't been paying her car insurance here. Of course she hadn't been paying her car insurance here. She didn't live here. She lived in California. But that was not persuasive to the people at the DMV in California. And so she has had this months-long journey through the bureaucracies of DMVs in California and Virginia trying to unlock <laughs> her driver's license and convince them, I really do live in California, I really do pay my car insurance, please let me drive. Some projects are harder than others, aren't they? Sometimes an unexpected you, a pr project you think might be easy turns out to be hard, and some projects you just know. You plan a wedding, Right, you move across the country. Some projects you just know. You've got a big uh, proposal you need to put together at work. So, sometimes you just know this is going to be a workout. And don't we sometimes find ourselves in the midst of those things just realizing, man, am I not in control? Like, there's a lot. I, I, I can try to get people to collaborate. I can try to get everything done on time. But almost never do we get to the end of a big project and say, that went perfectly, exactly what I thought was going to happen, exactly what I wanted to have happen, happened, right? So we're often aware of our limitations in the midst of these things. Today, we have in front of us, we're looking at the greatest project ever attempted on planet Earth, the project of redemption. And Jesus has come on this mission and in order to fulfill his mission he needs he needs to get himself killed in just the right way at just the right time in just the right place so that he can be as we saw at the end of the passage today the one man who dies for the people 
we're, we're used to looking at it from this end of things, but I, try to think about this from the other end. How would you go about doing this? You know, usually when you have a project to do, you got to get people to work with you. Think about Jesus's possibilities for collaboration here. You got the disciples, well-intended but clueless, and you've got the enemies who are enemies, right? And, and, and how is he going to be able to get this work done? He must die an innocent, sinless man. So can't commit suicide. Can't be guilty of a crime, not sinless anymore. So you can't sort of deserve the capital punishment. Can't lie to people or manipulate people to get there. Or you're sinning to do that. He has to die in a way that perfectly fulfills all the prophecies and meets mankind's need for redemption. I hope rolling through these next few chapters and sermons will, will just leave you in awe of what he was able to do and how perfectly it gets done. This passage follows this farewell discourse that you've been looking at in chapters 14 through 17. And this passage is really the first domino of events that leads directly to Jesus' death and resurrection. After a long wait, now Jesus' hour, this phrase, this word that is used throughout the gospel, his hour has come. It's the hour of suffering and death and resurrection. And it starts with his arrest. So I want you to gaze with me into this passage. I want you to see how our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how, how this work is accomplished through betrayal, through false arrest, through corrupt civil and religious leaders to bring about the salvation of our God. I hope it will just leave you in awe of the greatness of God. Today, we will see how Jesus steps toward his death as both an innocent man who is resolutely trusting God and as God who is in complete control. Both things are in view here and through this passage. I hope this passage will open up to you to, to, to be able to see the glory of Jesus Christ. I hope it will lead you to stand amazed to worship with awe and to trust this great God who can accomplish these things, to trust him without reservation. So let's just work through the passage today in four scenes. The first scene is this scene in the garden. Let me take you back to verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron and where there was a garden. There was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So this was a familiar place. Jesus often went to this place. It's just outside the city of Jerusalem. He met there with his disciples. It was a familiar uh, meeting place. Judas, who is betraying him, knows this. And so he brings with him soldiers. So those would be Roman soldiers and also officers. Those would be Jewish officers 
And there's a real focus here. I, I hope you sort of picked this up. Did you notice how John describes Judas twice as the one who betrayed him? Look at verse 2. It says, Judas who betrayed him. And then in verse 5, in case you didn't catch it the first time, it says, uh, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Why this emphasis on Judas who betrayed him? Well, I think there are two reasons John is, is, is drawing our attention to this. First is, it's important to, to, to note Jesus was arrested because of betrayal and that he was innocent. Right? There wasn't a, a court order to arrest a guilty man. This was a betrayal of an innocent man. It's important because a guilty Messiah is no Messiah at all. But Jesus is innocent. He's He's not guilty of any crime, and there's no legal reason to arrest him. So he has to be turned in by a betrayal. But second, I think it's helpful to see Jesus is going to accomplish the plan of death by cross through the responsible actions of sinful people. He's going to accomplish this through, through people who are doing terrible sinful things, and yet in this one action, there are two intentions and two parties at work, and God is bringing good through these evil intentions. Betrayal is a terrible sin, isn't it? It's a, if you've ever been betrayed, you know how hurtful betrayal is. Betrayal destroys the bonds of covenant and love and loyalty. This is why it hurts so much if you are betrayed. This is why adultery is so destructive to a marriage. And Judas betrays Jesus, a terrible sin, but our God is so great, he turns that betrayal around and uses it for good. And our God is so great that promise breakers and betrayers like us will be able to be forgiven through the good work that Jesus is entering into here. And all this takes place in a garden. Now this is significant. This isn't a garden like you might think of with flowers and, and, and park benches. It's a grove of olive trees. We know from the other Gospels, it's this garden called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Behind this garden is another garden. I want you to think back, if you, if you know your Bible, think back to the first garden that comes into view. The Bible begins in a garden. And it actually, you'll see in Revelation 21, ends in a garden, a city garden too. The Garden of Eden was a paradise. It was a perfect home and workplace for Adam and Eve. Think about this. The Garden of Eden was ruined by betrayal. Adam and Eve's rejection of God's loving lordship over them, it reversed the flow of human history and introduced corruption and curse into the world, and it resulted in human beings being alienated from God, separated from God. Now, think about what's happening. This garden isn't a paradise. This garden is a place of betrayal and violence. And here, the course of human history is going to be reversed again. Imagine the Potomac River suddenly flowing the opposite direction. What would it take for that to happen? Jesus is reversing the flow of history so that instead of alienation, reconciliation can come about. Isn't that wonderful? And stay tuned, because there's another garden coming into view at the resurrection. 
You'll see that in chapters 19 and 20. So, can you see the glory of Jesus Christ here in the, in the garden to reverse the flow in the course of human history, bringing about, instead of alienation, reconciliation with God and one another? Second scene, call this the name, the name. Verse 4 uh, through 9. Look back at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And when he said that, it says they drew back and fell down. This is a hard one to imagine. You've got you to engage your imaginations here to, 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 to get this. Jesus steps forward. Says, okay, who are you looking for? He's here with his disciples. There's this, this group uh, we don't know exactly how many, but it was a significant number of Roman soldiers and uh, officers of the Jewish court and, and some other people as well. And so he says that they say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I'm he. That, that's me. And before you know it, they're backpedaling and actually falling down. I, I want you to try, try to imagine the scene here. And remember, the guy who's writing this he was an eyewitness. He was, John was there. John saw this happen. Just, just try to imagine your own experience. Have you ever been in a situation where you, you felt in danger? Maybe you're alone and it's dark and there's a group of people coming towards you. You ever had that experience where maybe you felt a little threatened, maybe you're a little concerned about what might happen in the, in the dark with this group of people coming towards you? Here in the darkness, this group of people coming towards Jesus, the exact opposite of what we normally experience happens. The one guy says, who are you looking for? And the group, the armed group, the professional soldier group, they draw back and fall down. Can you see something of the glory of Jesus Christ sort of leaking out in this situation, in this moment? These are professional soldiers. This isn't your local neighborhood watch guy. This isn't the mall security cop person. These are professional soldiers on the ground. And the guy standing alone in that flickering torchlight, you know what he's going to do? He's going to help them get up so that they can arrest him. That's your Savior. Why'd they fall down? John doesn't tell us, but he gives us a very strong hint. It might simply be the extraordinary boldness of Jesus when he says, I'm he, in other words, that's me, but John points to something more than that, and you kind of have to understand some of the original language here in the Greek text to get this, because it does not come out quite so clearly in our English Bibles. But three times in this little passage, John records Jesus saying, I am he. Did you notice that? It's there in verse 5, I am he. It's there in verse 6, I am he. And it's there in verse 8, I told you that I am he. Now, what you need to know is that in the Greek, in the original language, that's two words, ego emi. Literally, I am. 
Now, if you've been here through the series in John, you know those are significant words. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, ego emi. Ego emi, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Ego emi is the way God talks about himself. When Moses encounters God in this burning bush and he says, who shall I tell them sent me? God says, tell them, I am sent you. In Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And Jesus comes along and says, ego ami, I am. John wants us to be very clear. This is the Lord, the great eternal I am, standing in the garden saying, come on, it's okay, get up. You need to arrest me, let's get going. Here in the garden, the great I am, the God who has no beginning and no end, the God who needs no one else, who is independent and self-sufficient, God has come in the flesh, the Word made flesh, and He's ready to be arrested so He can be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal I Am, the Good Shepherd, here to lay His life down for his sheep. Scene three, the cup. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me, please. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? If, if you read through the Gospels, if you're familiar with the Gospel stories, you'll know this is classic Peter, isn't it? Like this is Peter at his finest and at his worst, all, all at the same time, and it's just classic Peter. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, writes this lovely line. He says, the blow was as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Ms. Peter's misunderstanding was total. I think that's well said. The blow was as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. Now, I, I've never been a soldier, but I'm guessing, I, I don't know, but I just guess that if you want to overthrow a platoon, you probably don't start with the high priest's servant. It's probably not going to go well if that's your initial tactic. I, I don't know, but I'm just guessing that's probably not the greatest military strategy in history. This is classic Peter. He's just lashing out. He doesn't like what's happening, and he's trying to do something about it. Sound familiar? Anybody here live like that ever? I sure do. Peter's experiencing something he doesn't like. He thinks it's wrong. He can't control it, and so he just reacts. And he reacts by taking matters into his own hands. He doesn't seek God's mind on the matter, does he? He just reacts. Actually, God is standing right there, and he doesn't consult <laughs> Jesus to see what should happen next. The other three Gospels 
all tell us that in the garden, Jesus spends time agonizing in prayer, asking God to take the cup away, saying, if possible, take this cup away. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. John omits that. And sometimes the differences in the Gospels help us appreciate the emphasis of each individual author. I think John might be omitting that little part to show us the outcome of that prayer. Jesus has already prayed that prayer, and now he is resolute. He's going to the cross. It's decided. And so what's happening here, think about it. In the other Gospels, we see Jesus saying, Father, not my will be done, but yours. John shows us Jesus saying, in effect, to Peter, not your will be done, but mine and the Father's. This is going to happen. It's time to be arrested. It's time to be taken to the cross. It's time to die. And don't miss the significance of what he says here. He says, Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? When he says this, he's drawing on a very rich theme from the Old Testament, and that is the theme of the cup. I, I brought my my office cup here. Do you guys have favorite cups? Favorite? I'm a tea drinker. Yeah, maybe you have a favorite coffee cup, a favorite tea cup. It's that cup that if somebody else takes it, it's like, "Whoa, where's my? They're using my cup." Like, you know, they're like, "This is my office cup. It's black, but when you put hot water in it, it's got this really cool thing." And my daughter gave it to me. When it heats up, there's a picture of her and me standing at her uh, college graduation. It makes me happy every time I see it. So here's, here's my cup, and I love this cup, and I love being able to drink tea out of this cup. And sometimes um, cup in the Old Testament has these very positive connotations, cups that you, you love and appreciate. Um, sometimes the cup indicates all that God provides for us. It's my cup overflows, right? Psalm 23. There can be these very positive elements to it. But more often, the cup as a symbol in the Old Testament is a symbol of actually something very negative. You know what it is? It's a symbol of God's judgment. And so to drink the cup means to drink God's judgment against your sin. Isaiah 51, 7, 17, Isaiah says there, Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to the dregs, all the way to the bottom, the goblet that makes people stagger. Israel, because of their sins, because of their unrepentant sin, they had come under God's judgment. The nation had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been overrun and they were sent into exile and here Peter is prophesying to that people in exile saying you have drunk of the hand of the Lord you've drunk the cup of wrath and there's going to be a message of hope that's going to follow that drinking the cup of God's wrath meant coming under God's judgment for their sins Jesus comes to drink the cup of the father again think about this Jesus here in front of us. There's only one person in history who should not drink the cup of judgment. Only one. And here he is. There's only one perfectly innocent and sinless person in history. And that's Jesus. 
And he comes to drink the cup of judgment and death so that wrath can be removed from sinners like us. And the power of death can be broken over people like us, all who trust in him. Jesus Christ drank the cup of wrath. He drained it to its dregs so that your cup can overflow with forgiveness and mercy and eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? What a great God we serve. Behold your God. Can you see him here in the garden? No, Peter, I'm drinking that cup. Final scene. Pause here very briefly. It's Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas will come up later in the chapter, so you'll get more uh, perhaps in, in, in the next sermon. As Jesus is taken to Annas, you need to know Annas is the previous, uh, he's a former high priest, and he's the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who's the current high priest. And here we have this remarkable juxtaposition. Last week, if you were here, you heard the prayer in chapter 17. You remember what that's called? It's called the high priestly prayer. Why? Because Jesus is the true high priest. He's the high priest that we need, the intercessor that we need, the mediator between us and God. And so now here is the true high priest being brought first to Annas and then to Caiaphas. These are pretender high priests. The false high priests will send the true high priest to crucifixion so that the true high priest can die for the people by offering himself as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice so that believers like you and me can have confidence by the blood of this great high priest to enter the holy place of God's presence once and forever, all by the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ is the high priest we need. He's the one who makes intercession for us and his blood speaks a better word so that we can forever and always have access to the presence of God. Jesus goes to his death innocent and in control. Is this the Jesus you know? Jesus comes into a garden to reverse the curse and to bring reconciliation instead of alienation. Do you know Jesus this way? Do you know this reconciling power? Where do you need that reconciling power? In your relationship with God or with someone else? He gives you a ministry of reconciliation. Jesus, who said, I am the good shepherd, comes to lay down his life for the sheep. Do you know the comfort and security of having a shepherd like that over you, caring for you, watching over you? Jesus, the innocent and sinless one, comes to drink the cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of blessing. Do you know the joy of your sins forgiven, your shame removed, your guilt atoned for so that you can unashamedly, unreservedly, Know and be known by this great God who is your creator and your maker and by his people as well. Is this the Jesus you know? Can you see his glory here in the garden? Oh, church, let us worship him. 
Let us stand in awe of him. Let us be amazed by him. Let us trust in him. Let us tell others about him. Listen, if he is wise enough and powerful enough to be in control in this situation, isn't he able to be in control of your life too? You're not ruled by fate. You're not ruled by random chance. You're not ruled by the will of people more powerful than you. You are in the grip of the great I am. And he will never leave you and never forsake you. Fear not. He is your God. I want to invite the band up and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. On the night of his arrest, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Oh, by the way, as I do that, if you didn't get the little special cup on your way in, they're back on the table back there. You can go grab one. On the night of his arrest, Jesus knew that his hour had come. The hour to drink the cup of wrath, the cup of staggering, so that he could offer us the cup of the new covenant. Because Jesus drank the cup of the Father, we can drink the cup of forgiveness, the cup of fellowship with God, the cup of fellowship, communion with other believers. The Lord's Supper is a gift to help us remember all of this, to remember that cup by drinking this cup. So, we will in a moment eat and drink and remember Christ. Now this is a family meal. It's for Jesus' people. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you are in the right place. We're glad you're here amongst us today. But we want to ask that you respect the, the, the realities of this meal. It's an act of worship and an expression of partnership with Jesus. And we just want to encourage you to reflect on what we're talking about here today, what we're saying of Jesus, we encourage you to come to him and respond to his offer of grace and forgiveness. Come and follow him. For those who will take it, I just want to encourage you as we take a moment to reflect before we receive these elements, I want to encourage you to reflect on this Jesus that we're seeing in the garden. Reflect on who he is, how glorious he is, awesome he is and how worthy of trust he is. In Luke 22, at the Last Supper, Jesus takes this bread and he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes a cup and he says, this cup that is poured out for you it's the new covenant in my blood. Isn't that wonderful? The one who drank the cup of the Father's wrath offers us the cup of the new covenant so that we can be washed, forgiven, reconciled, and in marvelous and wonderful fellowship with God and with one another. So take a moment to reflect on these things. When you're ready, go ahead and take the elements and then we'll gather together and sing in a moment. Let's pray.
God, how can we, how can we thank you for that garden, for a second garden? How can we thank you for that cup drained to its dregs? How can we thank you for the great I am becoming the good shepherd, coming to live and die rise again for us. Oh God, we are amazed at your love for us, at this amazing, perfect plan of redemption and salvation. We're amazed at the good shepherd who stands here before us, ready to be arrested and taken away to drink the cup for us. Oh God, we thank you and I pray, Spirit of God, Make the glory of Jesus Christ fresh and freshly amazing to each one of us. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.